This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. Turn in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Samuel. The book of 1 Samuel. We are starting a new series this summer where we're going to be going through various of the Psalms. And so if you're wondering why we're turning to 1 Samuel, if this is a series in the Psalms. Well, the reason that we're going to 1 Samuel is because what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be looking at the stories behind the songs that we have captured for us in the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is a book of songs. That can be confusing to say. So the book of Psalms is a book of songs. There's songs that are written to be sung by God's people. But some of these songs, if you read them at the, at the beginning of them, they have this little subscript. And the subscript will say, this was written when. And there's an important context that we're meant to understand as we read these songs that are meant to deeply press us into the meaning behind the, these words. Have you, have you ever had a song you really, really love to listen to? And, and then you hear why the songwriter wrote it. And all of a sudden, those words that you already love take on a whole deeper meaning. It just, it just hits a little different when you know the story behind the song. So that's why I'm looking forward to getting in with you this morning. We're going to be looking this morning at the story behind Psalm 34. If you know Psalm 34, Psalm 34 is this beautiful psalm about God rescuing and delivering someone from trouble. Someone who is feeling helpless and weak. Someone who says he is heartbroken and even crushed in spirit. The songwriter calls himself this poor man. This is, a, this is an individual who has been brought low. And so if you've ever felt inadequate, if you've ever felt weak, if you've ever felt overwhelmed or unsure, fearful, sad, or yes, even crushed in spirit. Psalm 34 is a sweet place to go that will minister profoundly to your soul. And I think this psalm is made even sweeter when we understand the story that inspired it. Psalm 34 starts by saying, a psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and sent him away. That's what we're about to read in 1 Samuel chapter 21. As we get ready to read from God's Word, in order to appreciate what we're about to read, we need to have the origin story of David in the back of our minds. As you know David's story, you know that his story started when God told the prophet Samuel that David would be the next king of Israel. At that point, David was just an obscure shepherd boy. Yet a few years after Samuel's prophecy... The Philistines, one of the great enemies of Israel, they come up against Israel for battle. And their great warrior, Goliath of Gath, that's important, Goliath of Gath, this, this giant from Gath steps forward and gives us challenge. If anyone can beat me in one-on-one -on -one combat, we will surrender to you. He says that knowing that no one will dare to step up against him. It's a way for him to humiliate and insult and make these Israelites feel small and weak. Goliath was the world's greatest warrior. He was so big, he would have made Joel Embiid look tiny. This guy was over nine feet tall. 
his armor weighed 150 pounds, and he would have been able to run in it, to sprint, to wrestle, to grapple. Imagine the strength that that takes to do all that with 150 pounds of armor on your body. The head of his spear was 20 pounds, and he could throw it accurately 180 feet. And so imagine the strength it would take to take a 20-pound dumbbell and throw it accurately 60 yards down a football field. This guy was a killing machine, and no one dared to come against him until David shows up. He shows up and he says, I will step forward and fight this giant in the strength of the Lord. And he takes out his sling and he hits Goliath in the head. Goliath stumbles and falls. And then David walks up to the giant and takes the giant's own sword and slices off his head with it. And then he leads the Israelites in this great battle where they rout their enemies and send them running for their lives. Talk about an epic start to your career. In the coming years, David became this powerful general, and they began to make up songs about him, songs where they sang, King Saul, the current king of Israel, King Saul has killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. David was the most powerful warrior in the entire world, and King Saul got jealous of him. Even though David was his loyal servant, David did nothing to subvert the king. David supported the king and was committed to serving King Saul until King Saul's last days. He's like, I'm going to wait until King Saul is gone in order for me to assume the throne. And so David was not in any means trying to be a threat against him, and yet that is how Saul and his jealousy saw him. And so Saul tries to kill David. And David could easily have defended himself. I mean, taking care of Goliath would have been nothing for him to take care of King Saul. And yet he refuses to raise a hand against God's king. And so instead of leading a rebellion and a revolt, he decides to flee Israel. The first place he goes is the temple to get some supplies. And that takes us to our story this morning. I want to read into your hearing 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse 8. We're going to read down to the first verse of chapter 22. God's word says this to us. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take it, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in the dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the door of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? Do you brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there, and escaped 
the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Let's bow our heads and pray that God would speak to us through the preaching of his word. So why don't you just have a moment of prayer between you and God, asking him to open up these words to your ears and your heart. Would you pray also for me that God would help me be of benefit to you and most importantly be glorifying to him as I seek to faithfully preach his word. God, we ask that you would speak to us. We are here to hear from you. There might be all kinds of reasons why we came to this place to listen right now, but Lord, you have been behind all those reasons because there's something that you want to say to us. And so God, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, a far better sermon might be heard than the one I'm actually going to preach. God, would you speak to our hearts today, I pray, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'd like to title this sermon... Don't limit God's miracles. Don't limit God's miracles. That's also my main point this morning. That's also my only point this morning. Don't limit God's miracles. This story starts with David on the run, and he's stopping to get supplies, one of which is a weapon to defend himself. Traveling in those days was dangerous business. You need to be ready for trouble. So David goes to the temple and he asks for a weapon. And the weapon that just happens to be there is the same sword that David had taken off of Goliath when he beat him in combat and used to lead the Israelites to one of their greatest victories. David gets Goliath's sword. And where does David go? He could have gone anywhere. But he gets that sword and he decides to go into the land of the Philistines. And not just anywhere in the land of the Philistines. No, he goes to the city of Gath. Where was Goliath from? He is Goliath of Gath. This is Goliath's hometown. And so we need to, friends, we, we should read this quickly. We need to, we need to slow down and, and see what the writer is doing as he, he tries to very clearly get us to understand Something powerful in what's happening here. We, we need to picture this scene. Here's David showing up in the town of the warrior that he had defeated with the warrior's own sword that David had taken from him and won in combat. What this is meant to evoke in our minds is that things are about to go down. David has killed his tens of thousands, and the story is setting up to make us think that he's about to start adding to that number. We need to understand that David showing up with Goliath's sword is like the Avenger Thor saying, hand me my hammer. Right? This is like Captain Mar America saying, give me my shield, and then stepping forward to take on the enemies. If you're into westerns, this is... Clint Eastwood walking down Main Street and saying, you have to ask yourself a question. 
Do you feel lucky? Well, do you punk? Right? It looks like there's another epic battle that's about to be fought. But then the story takes this very surprising twist. Because that's not what happens at all. They, they start to sing his song. Saul has killed his thousands. David is tens of thousands. They knew who David was. But when David shows up, instead of taking out that sword and being led by God into another great victory of strength, verse 12 says that he is afraid. And instead of taking off some heads, he doesn't take out the sword at all. He begins to act like an insane person. He pretends to be crazy so that he won't be seen as a threat. He humiliates himself. I mean, spittle just coming down his beard. What a graphic picture. He, he humiliates himself to the point that the king's like, I've got enough crazy in my own house. I don't need more drama showing up here. And so he lets David pass safely through, and David escapes to the cave of Adullam. Why didn't David take out his sword? Why is David pretending to be crazy? Has his courage finally run out? Should he have just trusted God more, been stronger in his faith, taken the sword, and fought his way through the Philistines for his deliverance. Is this, is this what we're seeing here, that David is, is having a failure and crisis of faith? Well, not according to Psalm 34. David writes this in Psalm 34, verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. He goes on to write this in verses 17 and 18. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Friends, in 1 Samuel 21, David is not lacking faith. No, he writes that he, he actually had sought the Lord. He writes that he had cried to God for help. This is not him lacking faith. No, he turned to God's in faith. And, and, and God, he says, delivered him. And so here's what we need to see, that in our prosperity mindset that we have, particularly here as Americans, we totally miss what's going on in this story in its ancient context. Here's, here's what we need to see. David acting crazy. David being humiliated to the point that he wasn't even a threat. According to what David is writing in Psalm 34, acting crazy was not David's idea, but God's plan for his deliverance. David's idea was to show up with a sword. David's idea was to once again fight his way through things and experience great strength. But this time, God did not give deliverance through providing strength to David, but instead leading David into being made weak. This is just not the storyline that our modern ears would expect. In America, everybody loves a winner. We are the land of the bold and the brave. We are built for tough. We're a culture that celebrates strength. And so we're a culture that it's very common to know the story about David and Goliath. Everyone knows that story. The story of an underdog taking on a tough guy and beating him. That story will get put on the New York Times bestseller list. But this story, the story of David walking around with spit coming down his face, a 
David being made so weak that he's not even a threat? How often does this story get told? Let's be honest. We like to sing Psalm 138.5, which says, The Lord strengthened me. We love that song. But do we really want to sing Psalm 34.5, This poor man cried? We don't like to feel weak. We like to experience strength. Yet here's what we are seeing. What we are seeing is that God is so much of a God. God is so incredibly powerful that He can even use our weakness to bring about our deliverance. David's humiliation was not a barrier to God working for His salvation. No, His humiliation was the means through which God accomplished His salvation. So friends, what the backstory of Psalm 34 is telling us is that we need to expand our idea of a miracle. We can think that God's miraculous deliverance of us means that giants are always going to fall before us. We can think it means that our financial problems will all be solved. We can think it means that our relationships will all work out the way we hope they will. We can think it means that our diseases will always be healed. We can think it means that our problems will always go away. That our enemies will always be defeated. And can God do those miracles? Absolutely. Absolutely. We praise God for, for testimonies of things like miraculous healings and, and abundant blessings. God can and does bring victory through strength. And there's nothing wrong with asking Him for that. Like David wasn't corrected for showing up with his sword. He wasn't corrected for thinking that God could give him a miracle of victory through strength. David wasn't doing anything wrong. He was actually being wise. I mean, he was taking inventory of his skill set. He was a warrior. And so he's being wise and not being lazy and being like, okay, God, I'm just going to expect you to take care of this. He's not just letting go and letting God. No, no, no. He, he, is, he is skillfully thinking about how he can defend himself. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live in strength and taking steps to walk in strength. If you've got financial problems, put a budget together and start to work things out. Right? If you've got relational problems, roll up your sleeve and get to work on them. If you're sick, pray for healing and take some medicine and fight for your health. And God can give us victories in all those things. And we should praise God when He strengthens us and works miracles through delivering us in our strength. But we should not limit our definition of a miracle to God only working in victory. Sometimes God does not work through the victory that we hope to experience, but through us being made acutely aware of our weakness and our dependence on Him. David praised God for saving him through giving him the strength to kill Goliath. And David praised God here in Psalm 34 for saving him through bringing, bringing humiliation upon him that he might escape the Philistines in weakness. God can save through strength. But he is such a powerful God that he can also save through weakness. Weakness is not a barrier to what God wants to do to deliver us. Sometimes it is the means through which God delivers us. Should we doubt that? Should we think this is just a one-off, an anomaly in history? This is just David's story. 
Friends, we need to remember that what we're seeing put forward for us here is a foreshadowing of Jesus' story. Friends, this idea of victory through weakness, this is right at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus came to the city of Jerusalem, riding on a horse and being praised as a king, it certainly must have looked like things were about to go down. That God was about to wreck shop and destroy all his enemies. I mean, Jesus had certainly shown a lot of strength. He had stopped storms with his voice. He had walked on water. He had cast out demons. He had healed diseases. He had even raised the dead. And so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's coming to Jerusalem as the most powerful person that the world has ever known. But he did not go and save through strength. No, he humbled himself. He said, no one takes my life, but I choose to lay it down. And he gave himself over to the authorities. And they blindfolded him and beat him. Mockingly telling him, prophesy about who hit you. Friends, let's be clear, he could have. He knew their names. He was the one who, was, who had made them. He was the one who was sustaining their life in that very moment. He not only could have said their names, he could have spoken and their atoms would have split apart. But he didn't say a word. He allowed himself to be mocked. Then they put a robe on his bruised and beaten shoulders. The color of royalty, not done to honor him, but to add to his pain. They twist together a crown of thorns and jammed it into a skull, mocking this would-be king. Then they took him up a hill where he was stripped naked and hung to die on a cross. And death on a cross was considered the most humiliating way to die. It was illegal for a Roman citizen to be killed on a cross, no matter how heinous their crime. It was considered so degrading and so disgusting that Roman citizens were not allowed to be executed in that way. They, they needed a more dignified death. But there was no dignified death for Jesus. Jesus died in the most humiliating way possible. And yet through His humiliation, through Him being made to be weak, Jesus took that humiliating death on a cross and turn it into the greatest victory the world has ever known. Because after dying on that cross, three days later, he walked out of the grave. Proving that his death was not his end. But was the means to his end. Which was to pay for all our sins. And so the power of Christ has taken the cross. And turned it from a symbol of humiliation into the testimony of our salvation. Friends, this is the God we serve. This is the God that we are to look to. This is the God that we are to trust. He's the God who doesn't need strength to create miracles, but can use even weakness to accomplish the miracle of His redemptive purpose. And friends, if He can work through the humiliation of David 
which foreshadows the humiliation of Christ. If he can work through even the cross, then can't he be at work for you in the very challenges that you are facing right now? Can't he be so much of a God that he can take bankruptcy? He can take a relapse. He can take a relational crisis. He can take a job loss. He can take a bad health diagnosis. He can take being gossiped about and slandered and sinned against. He is so much of a God that he can take the very thing that right now is making you feel so weak and use that to show you more of himself than you ever would experience if you were always living in your strength. God can work miracles through making giants fall and he can work miracles through us being brought low. And so the point is, no matter what we are going through, friends, we can trust that God is going to come through. He will deliver us. We just need to stop limiting our our understanding of how he's going to deliver us. We need to stop limiting miracles to only be miracles of strength. Praise God for those miracles. We need to understand there's a miracle of being made weak. There's a miracle in being made so weak that you are pushed into dependency. There's a miracle in realizing that you have nothing so that you come to that place of knowing that in God you already have everything. There's a miracle in being brought to the end of yourself so that you might meet Jesus there and experience more of Him than you could ever imagine. There's a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. You might know her name. If not, you should get familiar with her. She suffered a tragic tragic accident that paralyzed her when she was 18 years old. She's been wheelchair-bound now for over 50 years. And for the past 25 years has been in daily excruciating pain on top of her paralysis. This is something that she writes in her book, Hope, The Best of Things. If you've not yet read a book by Joni, you need to. She writes, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now, I know that's not theologically correct. I know I can't bring anything with me to heaven. But I hope to bring it and put it in the little corner. And then in my new, perfect, glorified body, Standing on grateful, glorified legs, I'll stand next to my Savior, holding his nail-pierced hands. And I'll say, thank you, Jesus. And he'll know that I mean it, because he knows me. And I'll say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble. Because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. Then the real parade of praise will begin. And at that point, Christ will open our eyes to the great fountain of joy in His heart for us beyond all that we could ever experience on earth. And we won't be able to stop laughing and crying until it's all been spent. And then when we're finally able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away 
are tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I have the use of my own arms to wipe away my own tears, I won't have to because God will. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, what is your wheelchair? What is that thing in your life that brings you so much trouble? What would you say can even cause you to feel humiliated sometimes? I've got that stuff in my life. I've got the things that regularly remind me that I'm weak and that I don't have it all together. And friends, God can work miraculously to take hard things away from us. But he can also work miraculously through doing a deep work in us by keeping those things with us. And so whether through weakness or through strength, we can trust that God will work his miraculous redemption of us. And so we need to stop limiting God's miracles and start singing the song of Psalm 34 in the way it was intended. Let's go through that psalm briefly together. Psalm 34 starts by saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. See, we are to bless God. We are to praise Him, not just in the good times, but in all times, which means even in the humiliating times. We praise God at all times because we trust that He is working at all times. He has never failed and He never will. Therefore, His praise shall continually be on our lips, even when our weaknesses are so clearly being exposed. Verse 2 says, My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Friends, God is our boast. This world wants you to boast in your strength or in your skill or in your accomplishment. But our boast is not in what we do and what we can accomplish. Our boast is in God. And when our boast is in God, friends, that makes our soul glad. And so verse 3 through 7 goes on to say, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Friends, this is our story. This is our song. God saves. For anyone who looks to Him, for anyone who cries to Him, for anyone who goes to Him for refuge, no one who has put their hope in the Lord has ever walked away ashamed that they did so. No, He is the God who hears the cries of the helpless for help and He rescues them. And it might not come in the way that we expect. 
Sometimes it might even come in ways that feel like things are getting worse. But his deliverance will surely come just as sure as the tragedy of the cross was turned into the triumph of our salvation. And so as verse 8 through 10 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack no good thing. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Oh, taste and see. Friends, God invites us not just to know about him, but to taste and see, to experience him. I can describe him to you, but I can't make you taste him. I can tell you about him, but I can't make you see him. That is what the Holy Spirit needs to do when you come to him in your weakness and dependency and say, God, give me a little bit more, a taste of yourself. God, open the eyes of my heart that I might behold your glories. And friends, when we come to God and we taste of his goodness, he never leaves us wanting. Even the strongest have a point where their power fails. Even a lion, as this verse says, has strength that eventually runs out. God's power never fails. His strength never wanes. And so those who go to Him in their emptiness, for those who go to them in their poverty, for those who go to them in their weakness, those who put their trust in the Lord will never lack any good thing. And so in light of that, here's how we live. It's verses 11 through 14 tell us. Come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. See, trusting in God means living in obedience to what God says. It means turning from living our own way and instead listening to what God has to say. Trusting in God means that we fear Him above all. Not fear in the sense of being scared, but fear in the sense of revering Him. Fear in the sense that He is the one who is controlling our minds and our hearts. How often we fear so many other things other than God. How often we fear other people and crave their approval. And seek their affirmation. But friends, that is living in the fear of others. We are instead to live in the fear of the Lord. He is the one who is to be big in our eyes and our hearts. So much so that we want to live for Him and only Him. Because He is all that matters to us. And as we do, this is the promise that He makes to us in verses 15-22. through 22. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. And His ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears them and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, but those who hate the righteous will be contemned. 
The Lord redeems the life of His servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. Friends, this is the promise of God that He invites us to live in. It's the promise that we might be afflicted, but that affliction will not end us. It's the promise that we might be brokenhearted, but that brokenness will not define us. It's the promise that we might even be crushed in spirit. But that crushing will not be the end of our story. We live in a sin-cursed world, and so we should expect what Jesus says in John 16.33, that in this world we will have trouble. God does not promise to spare us from the trouble of this world. But He does promise to deliver us from that. And so we might go through seasons where we are brokenhearted. We might go through times where we are feeling crushed in spirit. We might experience various kinds of afflictions. We can go through all kinds of things, but friends, what this is telling us is that God will bring us through all those things. What this is telling us is that there is no pain that we experience in life that will not give way to God's plan of redemption for us. He does not promise to keep us from trouble, but to keep us in trouble and to deliver us through it. He doesn't give a timetable for his deliverance. Sometimes it can certainly seem like his deliverance is being painfully delayed. But the God who can use the humiliation of the cross to bring about our salvation is the God who never fails. And he will never fail you. So friends, in our weakness, in our dark days, that is no time to turn from God. No, that's the time to keep our eyes on Christ, who endured the darkest of days to bring about our salvation. We are to keep our eyes on Christ, for those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. Don't limit God's miracles. And so with this truth from God's Word, let's prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. If you're new, the Lord's Supper is a meal that Jesus gave. It's meant to direct our hearts to Him. Jesus took bread that He broke and said, take this and eat and remember then took drink the color of blood, poured it out and saying, drink this in remembrance of me. And so every time we take the Lord's Supper together, which is something that we do at the end of our worship service every Sunday, every time we take this meal together, we are going back to that dark day. We're meant to go back in our minds and our hearts to the day of Christ's humiliation which was also the day in which he accomplished our salvation. And so what I want to encourage us to do is to bow our heads and our hearts, just have a time of prayer as we reflect on what God is saying to us today. And after a few moments, the band's going to come up and, uh, and they're going to lead us in two songs. And as they lead us in these songs, if you put your faith in Jesus, no matter how weak you might feel today, come to his table. Be reminded that even in weakness, God can work deliverance.
chance. And if you've yet to place your faith in Christ, it's not by chance that you're here today. I believe God is inviting you to come to know him and to put your trust no longer in yourself, but to put your trust in Jesus. That he is your only hope for salvation. If you've not yet done that, we'll have people who are up front of the stage after the service. They'd love to be able to pray with you, talk with you. You can grab me or Pastor Matt, Pastor Caleb. We'd love to do that with you as well. But don't take the Lord's Supper because it's meant to be taken by those who know they have Christ. And so this is an invitation for you to reflect on what God is calling you into. And then hopefully you'll put your faith in Christ today and join us next week and take the Lord's Supper then. Let's just bow our heads. The band comes up on stage and gets ready. Let's bow our heads and have a moment of reflection as we consider what God is saying to us through his word.